Say, this must be a long sermon. He got to bring a cup of coffee up there with him. <laughs> this is actually gifts from my Latin class. Some of them have, uh, are still surviving after a couple of years of it. This one says, In principio erat werbum, and... At Deus erat verbum. Now, I'm looking back there at Noah, but he's asleep, so I won't ask him to uh, try and translate it for us, but he knows it very well. And this past week, I was given a gift from another Latin student. It's called Coffee That Chooses You. <laughs> Reformed. Luther's indulgence, the one that he would buy. So focused was Luther on the corruption of Rome, he never noticed his ever-growing vice. A fresh, hot cup of pumpkin spice. So, thank you, Morgan. It is the day that we do remember a great price was paid. This past week, my wife and I are going through the Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guard, and you come to countries like the island Maldives, and maybe, they said maybe there's 10 believers there. The, the scriptures are not allowed. It, it is a crime to have a copy of the scriptures, and to be, it, it's against the law to be a believer, and here we have this tremendous privilege of having the Bible translated into our own language. And so we remember that and celebrate that this day. I'm going to, when I start, go back a little bit before Luther, but probably the, some of you have read this by uh, some books on Luther, Martin Luther, the one by Eric Metaxas, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. It's everything you wanted to know about Luther, but were afraid to ask. It's in here. It's a well-researched uh, book. Um, perhaps an easier one to read is Martin Luther, A Guided Tour of His Life and Thought by Stephen Nichols. It's also very well-researched, but it's a little bit shorter. And um, if you need one that's really easy to to read. There's a whole series by Stephen Lawson and uh, a long line of godly men. He has one on the heroic, heroic boldness of Martin Luther. And then uh, this one, this one is so fascinating. Burned at the stake. Burned at the stake for what? For translating the Bible into the language of the people, the daring mission of William Tyndale. Um, then we come to later ones, the evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield, the expository genius of John Calvin, the gospel focus of Charles Spurgeon. There's a long line of godly men, let alone to say a long line of godly women. There, there's an excellent book on the women of the Reformation, and no man stands by himself in his marriage. He needs the absolute support and strength of his wife, and they, those wives also paid a great, a great price. Um, I'm also told Catherine Parr may make an appearance this evening, so just show up and look for her. I'm not going to say where she's going to be found. <laughs> so, beginning today, it's, it's appropriate that we talk about the five solas. Uh, sola, uh, it's an adjective, solus a um, meaning alone or only. And these five solas really 
epitomize what took place in the Reformation, not only in Germany, that was just the German uh, Reformation, but much earlier, starting with uh, Wycliffe. The solas were not systematically articulated until much later, and someone said, these five things, these five truths are really reflect the essence of what took place in the Reformation, both in England and, and in France and, and in Germany and throughout Europe. And, and that's, that's true. Why they, you can't read the Reformers and say these five things. You'll read their writings and you will find that these, write, these five truths were certainly uh, true of them. Um, in 1554, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was the really the author of the Augsburg Confession that came, came later, he said, Sola gratia justificamos, we are justified by grace alone, et sola fide. Justificamos, we are justified by faith alone. And so those great watchwords of the Reformation we will look at, uh, start to look at today. So it's getting closer. You go, he's still on sola scriptura. That's as far as I plan on getting this morning. So uh, the, the five uh, solas on the 504th anniversary of the German Reformation today. But let's pause. Lord God in heaven above, what a privilege we have. Where would we be without the scriptures? And yet, sometimes we, we find Fox News, sometimes we find the newspapers, sometimes we find other things more appealing to us than the scriptures. Forgive us. Help us to be a people who Take at least some time each day and open the book and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law and give us a heart of humility that we can say we are among the people for whom God says, this is the one, this is the one I look at, I esteem, I value, I regard. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, make us that kind of people. Forgive us of selfishness, of spending so much of our, our lives in selfish pursuits. Give us holiness, give us godliness. Give us a love for our great God and Savior that increases. Give us a deepening love for one another in the body of Christ. And give us a deepening, deepening compassion for sinners that know not the Savior. May we speak the gospel and may we live lives worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. The five solas in Latin, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Now, where's, ah, there's one of them right there. So, he goes, I'm not coming to Latin class anymore. You keep asking me questions. What are those little lines over the A called? A macron. What does that do to that letter? It makes it long, yes. So, and, and what case is that? with the little A over it, Jackson behind you. What, what case is that with the little Macron over the A? He says, you're shocking me, okay. Ablative, look at that. What, what great Latin students. The, the point is this, that if it doesn't have, that's a nominative case. It just means scripture alone, and with those little long lines over there, that changes, and you don't have the preposition, 
but you, you would in translated English. So that's scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, and then we're back to Christ alone. Sometimes you'll see that as solo Christo, and then soli deo gloria, glory deo, date of case, to God solely alone. So those, we don't say that this is all that's important in the Bible. I'm going to believe these five things and throw everything out. No, everything in the Bible is important. But if you miss these five solas, you have met, you, you've missed the message of the Bible. And it has to start with Scripture alone. Not Scripture plus tradition, not Scripture plus the Book of Mormon, not Scripture plus anything else. It is Scripture alone. You know what happens when you elevate something, and, and some do this, they say, well, natural revelation is the 67th book of the Bible. So I, I equate looking out the window and examining nature as, the, I said, no, no. You know what general revelation will do for you? It'll condemn you apart from special revelation. So we say, yes, God has spoken in general revelation in nature and human and conscience, etc. But natural revelation has to be interpreted through the lens of special revelation of Scripture. So we'll start with um, sola scriptura. And then we will work our way through the other one. Sola Scriptura means the Scriptures are our ultimate and trustworthy authority for faith and practice. Every word ultimately now that God has given to us of the 66 books of the Bible is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an indispensable it's a sine qua non. You can't, oh, you can understand the words of it. Liberals do. They just reject it. They know what it says. But you need the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and so then to flee to Him so those words in the gospel are not foolishness to you. You say, that's, that's exactly what I need. Christ did die for guilty sinners, and I'm a guilty sinner. And then, as we approach the, the Scriptures being regenerated, then they take on a different light. Merle d'Aubigny, one of the great uh, historians, French historians of the faith, said, the only true reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God. The Holy Scriptures, by bearing witness to the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, create in man, by the Holy Spirit, a faith that justifies him. Let me just back up a little bit and talk about... Uh, you know, there has always been and always will be a remnant. There, there, there'll always be a people of God. God has said that. Remember Elijah thought he was the only one, and, and, uh, but he was not. How many, how, how large, what, I, I look at estimates that people have done by saying, okay, you, etc., and how many people were alive at the time of the flood. Some estimate 2 billion people. How many people were saved? Eight. Eight. And then, uh, so sometimes uh, we read church history, uh, particularly how fast things went haywire theologically in the second and the third and the fourth uh, generation, and some look at Augustine and say he... He, he, didn't, he didn't invent the doctrines of grace. They come from the New Testament. They come from Paul. And where does Paul get them? He gets them from Jesus. And what is the Bible of Jesus? It's the Bible of the Old Testament. So this is woven into Scripture. What does Paul say? Abraham was what? He believed God, 
and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It's right there in the Old Testament. But I want to start then with John Wycliffe in 1328 to 1384. He's often called the morning star of the Reformation. The Church of Rome hated Wycliffe with such ferocity that 44 years after his death, they dug up his body and smashed his bones to pieces, and they burned the remains, and they threw his ashes into the river Swift. What were his crimes? Preaching sola scriptura, translating the Bible into English, and attacking superstitions. If you haven't seen them, there are a number of videos on almost all these reformers upstairs as well in the church library and uh, books uh, uh, on them that you can take out and, and see at home. John Wycliffe, so sola scriptura wasn't just new, something new with uh, Luther. Trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of being seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. And the person to make this atonement must be God and man. There it is, right, right, right there with Wycliffe. Holy Scripture, he said, is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith, and the foundation for reform. Jan Hus... Uh, was a Catholic priest, a Czech priest, and he began to be influenced by the writings of Luther, and he began to open his Bible and say, Is that, are these things really found in the Bible? And so he began to challenge the authority of the Pope, criticize the church's wealth, his followers, the Hussites. He was arrested, found guilty of heresy. Actually, he was told if you, he fled, and he said, if you come back to, to Prague, we'll give you uh, we'll allow you to go back, but uh, he was lied to, and once he got there, they said, we're not letting him go, and uh, he refused to recant. Burned at the stake at age 43. For what? For what? For putting the Scriptures into the language of the people. Seek the truth, listen to the truth, teach the truth, love the truth, abide by the truth, and defend the truth unto death. Every addition to his word is a lie. Sola Scriptura was not invented by Martin Luther. Some of you have been to Prague. We sent mission teams there a couple of times. Um, when we were there, I, I, I love taking pictures of the pulpits. My wife has, has then enlarged them for me, and they're over my desk uh, at, at home. And there's the pulpit of Jan Hus. Hus means goose in Czech, and it says, He's the goose who became the swan. The swan. Uh, then we come to Luther. Um, if you go there today, especially after the 500th anniversary, they've done a lot of work there preparing for uh, people to come. And uh, this isn't the original church. That one burned down, but it's been uh, rebuilt. And there on uh, the door on the side are the 95 Theses. So when, I, when we were there, I bought, uh, um, my wife had it framed for me. They're in Latin. I won't ask my Latin students to come read them for you. They probably need a few more, a couple of years of, of Latin to be able to do that. But you know why they were, he, so what nationality was Luther? German. So why did he write them in Latin? Because that was the theological language of the day, so they could communicate with one another in the different countries. They wrote in, uh, they wrote in uh, Latin, and so um, 
Here, I'll read off of Luther's indulgence here. Martin Luther is that world-famous monk who nailed what was basically an intervarsity debate challenge consisting of 95 points to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. Um, now that that is debated whether he not he whether or not he actually nailed them to uh, uh, the church door on that day. If you read Metaxas, he doesn't think he did that. The reason for that is Luther never said he nailed them to the church door. What he did, in fact, say he did was he he uh, sent these. They didn't have the postal system like we have. He sent them by uh, a courier to the Catholic uh, bishop, to challenge him on the sale of indulgences. Um, the report that he actually nailed them to the church door comes by his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, who wasn't there at the time, and when he later on wrote his uh, uh, biography of Luther, he said that's the way it took place. So some say yes, some say no. Um, since I wasn't there, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I can tell you this with absolute certainty. Luther did write the 95 Theses, and it did spark the German Reformation because his students, uh, there's a massive volume on Luther. It says he actually put them up there two weeks after that, and he put them to the church door, and I think I have the quote in here. Um, Here it is. So, so this is this is the letter, the the preface to those. Under your most distinguished name, he's writing to the bishop. Papal indulgences are offered all over the land for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Remember, he'd already had that trip to Rome, and he saw all the just uh, superstition and everything that's going on. And he says, I bewail the gross misunderstanding among the people that comes from these preachers. Evidently, poor souls believe that when they have bought indulgence letters, they are then assured of their salvation. They are convinced that souls escape from purgatory, and initially he still believed in purgatory, as soon as they have placed a contribution into the chest. They believe that man is free from every penalty and guilt by these indulgences. Oh, great God, the souls committed to your care, excellent Father, he's writing to Catholic bishop, are, are directed to death. So, thesis number 21. The, um, the indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Thesis number 62, the true treasure of the church, I treasure, is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. He got it. He got it. But Luther initially did not want to break from the church. He was calling, he thought, just bring it to the Pope's attention, and he'll see how bad these things are, and there's going to be a, re be a reform when the Pope and, and so his students copied these in German. They begin to be circulated. That's what really sparked the German Reformation. So when it finally was brought to the Pope's attention and uh, the, the um, uh, uh, Pope, uh, um, here's what he said, Pope Leo X. He said it in Latin, but I'm going to read it in English. Arise, O Lord, and judge your own cause. Listen to our prayers, for foxes have arisen seeking to destroy the vineyard and whose winepress you alone have trod. The wild boar, he's talking about Luther, from the forest seeks to destroy it and every wild beast feeds upon it. He's a drunken monk and when he comes, gets sober up, he'll understand that all those writings he has to say are wrong. 
course, Luther. Then as the tension began to be tighter, Luther said, no, no. You know, it's hard. Even you read Luther's commentaries, even in Genesis, almost everything uh, is that's wrong. He refers it to the Pope, the Antichrist, and he had been given 60 days to re recant. You know what he did after the 60 days expired? He burned the papal bull, that, uh, um, and that was set for the stage for the Diet of uh, Worms there in 1521. Um, the, the film is up there. Many of you have watched it. It just, every time I watch, I come to that end. I say, would I have been that bold? Would I have done that? Would I stake my life upon those five solas? You know, at first, all his books were spread out, and he said, uh, Cardinal Kedge said, I want one word from you, Luther. Ray Woko, that's it. I recamped. Will you or will you not? And he says, started to give a defense, and he goes, could I have one night to think about it? And you read the prayer that is recorded in his struggles that night, and so he came back the next day and stood be before the emperor and... Uh, um, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not, Ray Woko, repent, recant. It is neither safe nor right to go against Scripture. And then uh, the German uh, uh, edition of those words, they initially said those in Latin, are here stay ich, uh, God help a mere amen. In other words, here I stand, may God help me. And we know what happened. He left, the pro protection was um, rescinded, and while I was back, Frederick the Wise, his protector, had his own men kidnapped him, and they took him there to that uh, castle at, at Vortburg, and he translated from the originals Greek and Hebrew into the German language of the people. And Luther was asked later on regarding the Reformation, he says, what did you do? What did you do? says, I let the lion out of the cage. He let the people begin to read the scriptures in their own language. And that's why we hold to sola scriptura. And we'll look at uh, five qualities of what that means. But one of them is the clarity of scripture. The clarity of scripture. You need to read it and believe it. Um, so I'll, I'll quickly, uh, the thesis door, um, man, I just love big pulpits. And uh, that's uh, Luther's uh, uh, pulpit. I love the woman that was standing there with me more than the pulpit. Don't misunderstand me there. And there's uh, Wartburg uh, Castle. You go up in there, and um, they'll, they'll have a reproduction of that's where Luther would have sat. And, but if you read about Luther in his bed, Ooh, guy never, I, I'm called, never changed. Uh, he must have been a pretty ripe uh, after a while, but his his diligence in translating the scriptures. Um, then you could go to the Reformation Wall in Geneva, Switzerland. Some of you have been there. Uh, Jared, you, I I had to guide guard my heart against envy and jealousy when you sent me that picture. There he was, beneath that Reformation. Wall. Then, w then we go to Edinburgh with John Knox and Mary Queen of Scots. I fear John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Does anybody fear my prayers? Do I pray with that kind of boldness and confidence? John Knox was one of the Reformation's greatest prayer warriors, famous for crying out to God and praying, Give me Scotland, Lord, or I die. And you know where he learned all that? In Geneva, when he was in Geneva. He said, 
I have never found a sweeter school of prayer than at Geneva. To, so to say that the reformers, because they believed in the sovereign grace of God, were frozen chosen, they were chosen, but they weren't frozen. You, you just read their prayers. Read the piety of John Calvin. I weep sometimes when I read that book of a pastor's heart for his people, and I say, Lord, make me like that. Make me a person who truly cares for people and isn't just concerned to get intellectual truths between their ears. Help me to love God's people. George Wishart executed. And you know why John Knox, he hid. He hid. Um, James Mossman executed. Um, when we walked through that little um, cemetery up there in Edinburgh near St. Giles, and I started seeing the names on those tombstones, I go, wow, these, these are the men that, that I look to. And their wives suffered terribly as well as a, as a result of that. And I pick up the book and, I, and some mornings I don't feel like reading it. And I have to say, oh Lord, change my heart. This is your book. Change my heart. Give me a deepening love for the word of God. And it takes time. You have to saturate your mind. Mind renewal. You don't put, put your head on top of this or put the book over your head at night and wake up in the morning. It takes time. It takes effort. I still tell you this with tears in my eyes. The greatest failure of the church here in America is to read this book. Just look at, look at the surveys I've taken. Then I'll read the Bible. You need to read the Bible. If you're not accustomed to do that, come to one of us as elders or somebody and get an accountability partner. We'll hold you accountable. Develop good patterns of, I can't tell you how much to do each day. I can't tell you what time of day. For me, it's best early in the morning. This isn't reading to prepare a sermon. It's reading for my heart so that I don't become arrogant and puffed up and think of myself more highly than I ought. I need, I need grace. I need mercy. This is the word of God's grace. We need it. I could never grow a beard like John Knox. In 1516, Scotland changed forever. Come and discover the fascinating history and dramatic conflicts of the oldest house on Edinburgh's Royal Mile. And, and it was John Knox's um, house. There's St. Giles, another huge uh, pulpit uh, um, there. So we come to then... I'm not going to get very far in Sola Scriptura either, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can. But I thought, thought it was important to just emphasize the price that was paid for the Word of God that we have. How many, how many different English versions do I have, let alone Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and French and Spanish trans, translations sitting in there on, on my shelves? Um, so we're going to start with sola scriptura, which means this. Let me, let me jump down to the acronym. This is, I, I memorize things well by coming up with acronyms and acrostics. And when we were with our friends out in Colorado, he goes, George, you drove me nuts in seminary. He says, the first thing you do when we get an exam, you take out your exam and you're writing all these little words at the top, you know, and then you come back and fill them in. So I'm trying to help him memorize. And I go, well, just scan. He goes, no, don't do that to me. So if this isn't helpful to you, just forget it. But here's how I remember it. So I take the word scan. 
It stands for sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity, and then you can top that off with inerrancy that's needed. So these are characteristics of Scripture that we're going to look at, some this morning, some, Lord willing, next week before the Lord's table. So I'm going to start with, that's not the normal order you do it in, it's just one I put in so I can help remember it. But I'm going to start with the authority of Scripture. This book claims to be authoritative. It claims to be a word from God. This book claims that when you believe the words of this book, you are believing words from God. And when you obey words from this book, you are obeying the God of heaven. That's an audacious claim. And it also says the converse. When you refuse to believe this book, you are despising the God of heaven above. As a matter of fact, 1 John, John puts it this way. You're calling God a liar. So, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. You go, where'd you get that from in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked me. Thank you. Remember when, even before uh, Moses, uh, he was on his way back from Sinai, and he had not circumcised his child yet, and you'll find that first occurrence of thus says the Lord. But that, that little phrase in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's also a different way that uh, um, uh, very similar um, expression to that. Um, one occurs 418 times, the other 291 times, thus says the Lord. It means this. They understood that when Moses was speaking, this wasn't something he made up. This wasn't something he invented. That little phrase, thus says the Lord, Moses is saying, this is what God said to me, and as a matter of fact, after Sinai, I told him to write it down. You write down these words, and Moses, if you're going to be a faithful servant, Here's what you need to do. You tell the people exactly what I told you. Don't add to it. Don't subtract it. Subtract from it. And that's highlighted, really, in, in the accounts of the deliverance from Egypt. Exodus 5.1, 7.17, 8.1, and 20, 13, 10.3, 11.4. He would go to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh goes... I don't care. And later on, halfway through the plagues, he did begin to care because he didn't like the consequences. But he did not repent. He would say, okay, go back to your, your, your God and, and pray for me and, and whatever, and I'm going to change, but he didn't. Here's Exodus 10.3. Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. In other words, the refusal to respond to what Moses was saying is a refusal to listen to God himself. You say, well, that's just one verse. Well, there's a whole lot of verses in here that say the same thing from the, from the prophets. Um, and... It's not always easy. Remember, Moses is up there on Mount Sinai second time, and, and uh, first of all, he, he came down, and uh, so he comes down and he hears this noise, and the people uh, have constructed a golden calf. He goes, Aaron, what did you do? Well, you know, we just took this stuff, the people made me do it, and I put it in the fire, and all of a sudden, poof, out came this, this golden <laughs> calf. And the Lord didn't think that was too humorous, the Lord says. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. Whew. This is serious stuff, thus says the Lord. What did Joshua say? Thus says the Lord. David, remember after he committed adultery and then uh, had Uriah the Hittite, one of his famous fighting men, murdered, and Nathan finally came to him. You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? That is so helpful for me. Every, every time I hear sin knocking on the door of my heart, I need to run that through my mind and say, do you want to despise God and his word, or do you want to believe him and obey him? God speaks through the prophets, Isaiah, repeatedly. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Then we come down to the New Testament, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here's now God in the flesh, resurrected, going to ascend to heaven, and he gave commands. Command for what? Teaching them to observe all things. What's the all things? It's found here in the book. It's found in the book. And then we come down to that great passage in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, and he charges Timothy, Timothy, you have had a great advantage. If you're here this morning, and you have had this advantage, there is great accountability upon you to have been taught by your parents or someone else the Scriptures. Timothy, from infancy, it means brephos, from early childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. What are they capable of doing? Of making you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then he uses this, Pasagraphe, all scripture. Not every word Paul said was, is scripture. Not every word that Peter said was scripture. It means what is written down, what God moved upon them and written down. Scripture, scriptura, that which is written, graphe, writing, all scripture is theopneustos. It's breathed out by God. And what's it? It's not only useful for salvation. But it's profitable. It's useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, anthropos, and generic term, women as well, may make you thoroughly furnished for every good work. And so Timothy, Paul concludes that section with this. I charge you... Diamar my, I solemnly charge you in chapter 4 before God in Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead at his epiphania, his appearing, his basileia, his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Well, when should you do it? <laughs> Be ready. Eukairos, Akairos, when the time is good, when the time is bad, because the time's going to come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine, but they're going to heap up for themselves teachers because they got itching ears and teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. But Timothy, let me tell you something. You better endure. Fulfill your ministry. Keep this word as the center of it.
we're not going to get that far. I'm going to have a couple minutes here to wrap it up so we can do our final hymn. If, if I, let me state it this way. The, the scripture is self-authenticating. You know what that means? They are, the scriptures are self-authenticating. We come up with a theodicy or a defense of God. He doesn't try and defend himself in here. I mean, he answers uh, some of our questions, some of them he doesn't. And so some object and say, well, what's the highest appeal? You, you keep going back to the scripture, George. You keep going back to here. That's not fair. You assume this is true. Exactly. Exactly what I do. Why do you do that? Because there is no higher appeal. God is the highest authority. And so some say, well, this, that's a circular argument. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you. So you give out the word of God and you need to live lives that show that God does forgive and change sinners by the way you live. But the real clinker for me is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul's praying. We thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you received it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Rene Descartes, with his cogito ergo sum, um, really planted the seed for the Enlightenment um, because he, he could arrive so at absolute certainty. I think, therefore, I am by his own mind. Um, Immanuel Kant, uh, in an article using the German word out, out, Aufklärung. He described the Enlightenment approach. Use your reason without direction from any other source. Have courage to use your own reason. That's the motto of the Enlightenment. Now, let me say, we, of course we use reason. See? You, you have to read the words. You have to understand them. But what their meaning is, you determine whether it's true or not. And we don't need this supernatural stuff. You don't see that happening today. And so just, just throw that stuff out. Reason was the golden ticket to a life of total objectivity, free from bias. You know what the Bible says? That's a deception if you think that life has no bias. And so now man was seen as inherently good, not evil. A shift from theocentrism to anthropocentrism, man became the center, the sine qua non of the Enlightenment. Scripture is no longer trustworthy, and an anti-supernatural bias began to dominate the intellectual world of academia and saying, hey, we're going to solve all the world problems now, and so by the time you come, come around to... Uh, 1960, 1970, some of the theologians are saying, man, we were, we were pretty arrogant. We thought we were going to solve all the problems, and it didn't happen. So now we need postmodernism. You know, postmodernism is just liberalism with another name on it. That's all it is. It said, okay, they were too certain, and they were wrong. So there's no such thing as certainty anymore. Throw absolute truth out the window. Just little tease for, for uh, truth now, and uh, except for our, our one dogma that if you say you have absolute truth, <laughs> you cannot be right. Um, Embrace everything. Embrace all the views of the atonement, Tony Jones. No, no. We come back to this book. I'm shifting through to my conclusion. Here it is. Matthew Barrett, in an excellent book on Sola Scriptura, they wrote five volumes, each one of these in this series on each one of the solas. He says, 
The battle over biblical authority is far from over. There continues to be an ever-growing number of books published on the subject every year, many questioning Scripture's authority, inspiration, inerrancy, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency by so-called evangelical Bible critics. Peter Enns, graduate of Westminster Seminary, Ph.D. at Harvard University, he taught at Westminster until 2009. They had him leave. Um, he writes, The Bible is not reliable and factual in its historical narrative. What the Bible says happened did not happen. Much of the Bible reads like fairy tales, Adam and Eve, God parting the Red Sea, many of its theological descriptions, even about God, and ethical instructions are disturbing, wrong, contradictory, and at times even immoral. Consequently, the Bible is not inerrant, clear, or sufficient, nor should we consider parts of it inspired at all. He is not the only writer that has come from an evangelical background and writes with an axe to try and dissuade people from believing the Bible. But I'm going to conclude with this by Matthew Barrett. It's just excellent. Well, first of all, Isaiah 48, quoting 1 Peter, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Barrett writes, if God had never revealed himself, what would your life look like? Can you even begin to imagine what your world would be like if you possessed no word from God? You'd have no way to know who he is or what he's done. You'd have no way to know who you are and who he wants you to be. As a sinner, you'd be spiritually lost, dead, blind, self-deceived, Apart from a word from God, you'd have no salvation, no hope, no relationship with your Creator. But the good news is, as Francis Schaeffer put it, He is there and He is not silent. He has spoken. We are not left to ourselves in total confusion, despair, and death. Don't think of God's divine revelation as a response to us. God finds us and makes himself known to us. God is the speaker. We are the listeners. It's not enough to say that the biblical authors wrote about God or even wrote for God. God himself speaks, and his best and final word to us has come in the person of his son. If you're here this morning and you're toying with Scripture and you're standing over this book, you are in serious jeopardy of perishing eternally without any hope. This book claims to be a word from God. I pray you'll believe it and read it and make it the foundation for your life. And if you're here and you're a believer this morning, Satan hates us to read the Scripture. How are you going to be thoroughly furnished for every good work if you don't know the book? You need to know the book, believe it, obey it for the glory of God. Jerry.